Thanks, Jay. Uh, it's good to be back again. Yep, uh, there's more people here today than yesterday. What I'm going to try to do for you is uh, like a paragraph recap of yesterday and then move into sort of uh, some practical matters regarding uh, marriage. It can be, so the title of today is uh, Revitalizing Christian Marriage. And yesterday we talked about how things went south a little bit. It can be a little tricky to talk about revitalizing Christian marriage to a group of Christian college students. On the one hand, there are plenty of you who feel some degree of angst over relationship matters, whether that means you're thinking about finding a mate here while at Covenant or not. There are others among you who don't want to even think about marriage right now. Wonder why other people are fretting about it. Plus, people talking about marriage can come across like culture warriors, and you're tired of hearing that. So I get that. I have two kids in college myself. They have run the gamut on this subject in a few short years. And you're in luck, because I'm not going to give you any advice about your own relationships, your own marital futures, whether they look positive or less so. I'm a sociologist, so I mostly talk about themes and trends, good and bad, and less about personal advice. Yesterday I talked about how marriage, even in the minds of most Christians, has moved away from being a foundation of the life course, one which people enter to help build a life together, and it's become more of a capstone marking the successful completion of a young adult life. Thinking of marriage as a capstone reinforces the idea of the independence of the spouses rather than their interdependence. Capstone is the finishing touch that people put on a structure. It's a moment in time. A foundation, however, is the beginning, what the building rests upon. It's essential and practical, necessarily hard-wearing. In the capstone vision, marriage is more of an accessory. But whether it's capstone or foundation, I'm a fan of marriage. It's been good to me, despite its tall demands, despite a marriage that is not simple, and my own half-hearted efforts to make it good. I think marriage has served a lot of other people as well well as two, including you students, many of you students. It's a profound source of developmental advantage for kids. The fact that any of you are here is testimony to the developmental success of the household you grew up in, no matter what happened there. Intact families, whether Christian or not, are a profound source of developmental benefit. So when marriage recedes widely in a society, as it has across the West today, it's helpful to think about what can we do about that. I mean, I'm not just talking about how you should get married and contribute to the bulk of married people. I'm talking about how you can support a marriage-friendly culture, regardless of your state in life. So what is possible here in the face of such powerful forces that we feel up against. Well, there are some things that are possible. 
In the book, I wrote about eight ideas. Today, I want to talk about two of those ideas. Things that I discerned from marital mentalities and marital cultures in the book, which collected data from young adult Christians in seven different countries. The first thing I think you should do is make sure the home is a haven in a heartless world. So, here goes. The guy's using terms like haven and heartless world. Sounds like it's material derived from the old hymnal. Havens. Who talks about havens anymore? Your professors, maybe, are familiar with the term because it's a title of a book by a social critic named Christopher Lash. 1977, he wrote this book. He took his pen and directed his gaze at a variety of sacred cows in American society over the course of his career. And this one was about the domain of family. He didn't mince words. Just a quote from him. He said, the sanctity of the home is a sham in a world dominated by giant corporations, unquote. The sanctity of the home is a sham in a world dominated by giant corporations. Try making a hymn out of that. That was 1977. 20 years later, but still almost 25 years ago, Berkeley sociologist Arlie Hochschild described in her book the time bind, how our workplaces have become our home, and how the home seems to have become a drudgery, a place to figure out how to get more work done. Hochschild found in her study that the people she evaluated didn't actually challenge the company's claims upon their time. They didn't try very hard to maintain a life apart from the workplace. They ignored policies that were offering them shorter work hours and more time at home. And when the stresses of the workplace got to them, they didn't resort to excessive drinking or drug use. They didn't find solace in their marriage. Instead, she found these corporate employees stole time from their children in order to get more work done. Household efficiency was a key goal, so family responsibilities were outsourced. They did all of this in spite of the fact that the company wasn't making demands about these things. Employees were policing each other by their own elevated expectations for work. I actually don't believe anything substantial about our work culture has changed in the last 25 years since the time bind came out. Save perhaps for our invention of time-saving devices so that we can, what, get more work done. This is not somehow the accomplishment of an overbearing state. We have collaborated ourselves in the destruction of the home, the peaceful family dwelling, preferring material achievements to the intangible satisfactions and goodness of family, friendships, and faith. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul here, and I am the worst of sinners. 
I recognize the damage that's been done because I allowed my home to be co-opted by work and employment concerns. Work knows no boundaries. It wants more. More of me, more of the time that I have with my wife and the time that we have with other people, including our own children. And it wants more whether we're at our workplaces, traveling, or at home. I mean, I get that paid work is necessary and important, but it does not follow that it has to colonize our home. Something that the desktop computer advanced and the portable laptop and smartphone have perfected. Sadly, the last frontier, free Wi-Fi on airplanes, is going to collapse any day now. I don't look forward to it. I would bet that many of you, students, faculty, and staff, live a merry sort of life. The vast majority of us are Marthas, for whom Jesus reserved some pretty poignant language when she complained that Mary wasn't doing enough work. We're sort of proud of it. We too think that somehow Mary was in the wrong. I mean, we're proud to be Marthas. We're not jealous of Mary. We like work. We like it too much. For many Christians, the home is just another location for the overreaching claims of the free market whose logic does not belong there. Okay? The free market's logic does not belong inside your home. Efficiency, value, speed, and success are demonstrative business values. They don't make for a better home. On the contrary. Now, exactly how far has this market mentality penetrated our homes, our marriages, and our bedrooms? Let's count a few ways it's happened. And they're not shocking. The notion of a Sabbath day of rest is a distant memory in our economy and in a lot of our homes. Cuts into profits, cuts into work. Class on Monday, got to prepare. We have fewer children so we can invest more in them. In the context of small families, children learn to be served rather than to serve. We work too many hours, convinced we're doing it for our families. We're strategic about providing opportunities for our kids to get ahead. We're suckers for social media, which only fosters dissatisfaction. With fewer friends, we pay money, good money, for people to listen to us. We've created a lucrative industry by outsourcing the care of our parents and our grandparents. None of those are shocking. I'm guilty of most of them. Each, however, reflects the logic of a free market that is increasingly corrosive to both anticipating and enjoying marriage as well as valuing, caring for children and for parents. Each of those can be an economic stimulus, music to the American ear, 
and yet still be ultimately harmful to us. The free market, which is an obvious good when it stays within its bounds, is not just agnostic about marriage and family. Its fundamental logic is one that liberates the individual from all commitments that transcend the self. It doesn't care about marriage and family. Not all of that stuff is soluble. And I'm not here to start a movement. But nor is it difficult to imagine some basic, humane, practical steps by which you can resist some of those forces bent on eroding the home. Some of those you can even practice here at school. Here's a few. At home, linger over the dinner table, perhaps an extra 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes. Cafeteria, the same. No devices at the dinner table. The rule in our home, sometimes violated, sometimes violated by me. Read aloud more. Pray aloud. Sing more. One of the staff helping yesterday was singing while he was taking down material. I said, you know what? That's exactly what we need more of. Singing more. I can think of nothing so unbridled in its unitive power as being musical together as a family or as friends. One of my friends also said, singing together is so hot. I said, I don't know about that, but I'll take your word for it. Visit coffee shops and use them for their intended conversational purposes. Hike with friends. Learn to dance and then keep dancing. My kids learned to dance. They danced for about two years, swing dancing. I thought it was the greatest thing to watch. And then they stopped. Look around you more instead of looking down. <clears throat> unmediated relationships, unmediated relationships help make us persons, not just individuals. Persons are constituted in part by their social relationships. Individuals, that sounds like a completely solitary thing. Elena was a 24-year-old we talked to in Moscow. She lamented the industrial traits of the contemporary home. She asked, how do we learn to love here? Where can one get the experience of loving your neighbor? And if all of this was foreign to you in the home of your youth, Seek out friends in whose households you can see these things and practice them. You can say that advice like this is kind of just not realistic in today's fast-moving society. I totally agree. It is not realistic, given how penetrated we've been by the free market mentalities. But if you want a shot at generating sustained happiness, emotional sense, stability, and a sense of rootedness in your future family, whether you marry or not, you will dwell upon the gravity of our common situation and you'll think about ways to resist. We're making our way towards the logical end of our individualism. Why is loneliness endemic in a world where we are never alone? 
because we're not meant for mediated relationships. The impulse for self-destruction is unprecedented in an era unmarked by war or economic depression. It shouldn't be happening. It's partly this mediation business. Get back to unmediated contact. The human person is not meant to be a cog for the economy or for the state. Remember your Aristotle. Maybe learn your Aristotle for the first time. Economies and states exist for the family, not vice versa. Marriage and family are supposed to be a foundation, not a feeder system. Lash's words, 1977, the sanctity of the home is a sham in a world dominated by corporations. Then Hochschild showed us how we were complicit in it. We were not resisting. Fast forward to today, we are paying for our own domination. Now even our leisure time is in service to giant corporate titans. We have to resist. Second idea, create or recover marriage-friendly subcultures. Many lament the collapse of what might be called a marriage culture in the West, whatever that exactly means. It's not just a marriage culture that has collapsed, though. It's more than that. In his book, Why Liberalism Failed, Notre Dame political theorist Patrick Deneen documents the near, quote, evisceration of generational customs, practices, and rituals that are grounded in local and particular settings. Unquote. I could see that in all seven of my research sites. It's not just because there's a KFC and a Starbucks pretty much everywhere you go in the world, though that is true. It is about what Deneen called the monoculture that is now spreading beyond the West. It started here, spreading east and south. A monoculture that, quote, colonizes and destroys actual cultures rooted in experience, history, and place, freeing us from other specific people and embedded relationships, replacing custom with abstract and depersonalized law. Replacing custom with abstract, depersonalized law. Alexander Solzhenitsyn also, when he was lecturing the Harvard undergraduates back in 1978, complained that when he got to America from the Soviet Union, he's like, you all are just increasingly dominated by law, and law makes things right somehow for you. That was 78, back when we weren't paying attention to Supreme Court cases at all. And now that's all we seem to pay attention to. I think he's right. Increasingly, I talked to young adult Christians in Lebanon, Mexico, Spain, Poland, Nigeria, U.S. They all start sounding like each other. In the end, distinctive cultures are receding, and a dominant, standardized monoculture is emerging. Criticism of that monoculture is increasingly framed as parochialism, or even now nationalism, and I think that characterization is unfortunate. <coughs> Evangelical author Andy Crouch aptly adds in one of his books, if we seek to change culture, 
we will have to create something new. Something that will persuade our neighbors to set aside some existing set of cultural goods for our new proposal. That something, Crouch adds, invariably starts small. Christian culture grows through networks, he said. But it's not a matter of networking. It's a matter of community, not the abstract, theoretical, feel-good type of community idea. He said it starts with a relatively small group of people whose common life is ordered by love. And I did see evidence of this in the field. Now, it's also important to distinguish between producing culture, which Crouch talks about, and mimicking culture. Modern Christians have a tendency to riff off of what Deneen calls monoculture. And Christians are not currently known for their production of culture, of a distinctive culture. But Crouch qualifies this, saying, before we can be culture makers, we need to be culture keepers. Robert Louis Wilkin reminds us, memory is a defining mark of Christian identity. Memory is a defining mark of Christian identity. It's creating a future that's connected to the past. This has always been important. But it's about to get more important. Because our first love, our phone, only connects us to the present. The eternal present. By the way, sociologists continue to document secularization and declining church attendance and and interest in all matters religious. You know why? It's not because colleges are churning out atheists. Whether you're in college or not, we're becoming apatheists. Non-stop interesting things in front of our face just make us apathetic about memory. Christian memory, new information, new news, new pictures, the past becomes uninteresting because the past isn't changing. Memory is a defining characteristic of Christian identity. Back to marriage-friendly subcultures. How do you do it? I am reminded of the network of young adults that formed in Krakow, Poland, when Karol Wojtyla later became St. John Paul II. He called it Środowisko, which translates into environment or milieu. It was about creating a social environment in which Christian and just plain human formation could develop amid state and informal opposition. Środowisko was not a program. It was not a Bible study. It was a web of persons that revolved around the future Pope, from whom they received spiritual direction and education, and around whom they built and enjoyed friendships together. Particular groups would form around common intellectual conversations. There were groups that were physicists. There were groups that studied engineering to which then Wojtyla offered philosophical engagement and pastoral support. This was life together, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer described in the book by that name. Communities 
Crouch reminds us, are the way God intervenes to offer within every culture a different and better horizon. Which means that great preachers aren't actually nearly so valuable as good pastors. Good pastors will care more about, more than just about Christian formation. They will care about human development, their people thriving. Fostering marriage was not the goal of Shrodovisco, but for many of its young adults, it became a welcome byproduct of it. A wide shift in the monoculture, which Deneen maintains now transcends time and space and even nature, that's not on the horizon. But grassroots resistance matters. For Christian culture to be renewed, habits are more vital than revivals. Rituals more edifying than spiritual highs. This kind of efforts, the Shrodovisco-like thing, are tenuous by definition. But Christian organizations with vibrant subcultures seem our best shot at resistance. Remember C.S. Lewis's remark, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. When you think about marriage cultures, aim at vibrant Christian subcultures and marriage gets thrown in. Marriage and family, like the Christian faith itself, has much to do with memory. Family is a very old source of identity, far older than the new sources of identity about which we hear so much today. But ideas are not free-floating or permanent always need help. They need defense. They need offense. Christianity has been particularly good to marriage. But while Christians continue to value marriage, they inhabit an atomistic, individualistic environment, now bending matrimony to fit material and psychological expectations. Can Christianity still thrive if marriage retreats further can civil society thrive if marriage retreats further? I don't know. I hope so. Either way, we are going to find out. And you, regardless of what the life ahead of you looks like, can be a culture keeper in this way. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are the author of marriage. Your son is the founder of our church, source of our salvation. We thank you for the families that we came from, warts and all. We look forward to what you have in mind for us in the future, vocation to which you have called us, whatever that is. Pray that you would cause us to thrive in that, and that regardless of what the future looks like, that we will be culture keepers with regard to marriage and faith. Help us to turn away in small ways when we can from the things that cause us to look down, the things that mediate our lives, and move towards that which is unmediated. 
relationships with each other and with you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.